Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here's your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis management, disaster planning, COVID, business continuity, emergency management, anything that's relatable to those topics. Speaking of topics, if there is something you want us to talk about on the show or you'd like to be a guest, please go to the Voice of America page for the show. There is a button underneath the graphic that says uh, send the host an email. I do get all emails, and I do respond to everything I get. If you want to talk about a product or service your company offers, you can reach me the same way, and I can get you some information on that as well. A reminder to everyone, I will be presenting at the BCI Virtual World Conference. Uh, I speak on November 5th. I cannot remember the time, but uh, I will be uh, presenting at that conference like to thank everybody at Stone Road and their product, BoastAssessment.com, for uh, sponsoring today's show. Uh, they have an application, the Boast Assessment, where you can answer a bunch of questions and keep track of how uh, your business continuity program is doing and uh, align your resources effectively. You can use it over and over again. And uh, I'd like to thank everybody at SolutionsReview.com. Uh, just uh, the other day, September 23rd, they added my book, Testing Disaster Recovery and Business Continuity Plans, to their list of 16 books that all leaders in business continuity and disaster recovery should have in their library. So thank you very much for that. That came as a great surprise to me. And congratulations to all the other authors. Speaking of authors, by now it should be no surprise to anybody I love to read. Today's guest is an author of one of the books that I read. And uh, from our chat last week, I want to reiterate, I really do read these books. I don't just pull them off a shelf and then uh, peruse through. I really read them all. This is a great book, and uh, I swear it's more applicable now than it has been probably, <laughs> you know, um, when it was first written. But I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Lawrence Barton for his book, Crisis Leadership Now. Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Alex, and congratulations on your book as well. Oh, thank you. Uh, it was, like I said, a big surprise to me. <laughs> um, now, I know you and I had this chat last week. We, we talked for about 20 minutes uh, about what we were going to do today. Um, so I'm pretty familiar with uh, you know, where you're coming from, but could you give our listeners you know, around the globe a little bit of a, a biography of yourself, what you do, and uh, you know, how the book came about, and some of your experiences? Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm based in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and I have a private practice in crisis management, and I'm also a distinguished professor of crisis management at the University of Central Florida. And really, for the past 30 years, Alex, I've been working with corporations and nonprofits globally on preventing and responding to disasters. I served on the faculty at Harvard and Penn State, left academia actually, to go to Motorola, 
where I was in charge of crisis management for what was then a huge company, $31 billion in annual sales. We had eight murders on my watch and obviously product recalls, natural disasters, all kinds of problems with suppliers. And it really helped me understand the direct applicability of what you all do for a living and then returned back into private practice after Motorola. So it's been a phenomenal journey, and I still am very active in crisis planning for many wonderful companies. Did, did, did I hear you right? Did you say eight murders? Yes, we had eight murders during my five years, and it was really for that reason, because I had moderate experience with workplace violence up until then. I'd written about it, analyzed a number of cases, and actually for my Ph.D., interviewed a number of you know, mentally ill people. But no employer in the U.S. had ever, other than the U.S. Postal Service, ever had that many murders. So it's a horrible thing to say, but I kind of became the poster child for understanding and writing and analyzing. So I was asked to help and work with the police and understanding the, the background of the cases and why literally co-workers were killing each other and the supervisors. And a lot of it had to do with the company. We were growing so fast. We were often not doing good background checks. Uh, we were really putting anybody on some of our factory lines if they could breathe and, and operate machinery. So there were a lot of locks that were missing just in terms of making a good hire, let alone looking for some of the signs and, and signals of a person in distress. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I, I think you mentioned that um, that's the topic of your new book, isn't it? Workplace violence? It is. A, a yeah, new new book that just I haven't got it yet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, that's fine. Yeah, the new book just came out. It's called The Violent Person at Work. And literally, we stopped the presses in March because we were literally hitting the presses in London. And I asked the publisher, I said, we are in a pandemic. I first wrote about a pandemic 17 years ago in the book you referenced, Crisis Leadership Now. And I really need to go back and reflect on what are some of the stress points for employers in terms of benefits and people in hospitals and rethinking how we're going to test, when we reopen, when we close. So the violent person at work literally just came out. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I can't believe that it's been 17 years since the last book, but it's, uh, it's quite a journey and it took a long time to prepare. Well, I, I think I might uh, touch base with you uh, after we pre-record this episode um, and get my hands on that book and maybe have you come back and talk about that topic. Because when I heard you. you say eight murders, I just, you know, my chin hit the floor. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, one of them in particular, I won't get into it today, but it would be a good teaser for the future. But one of them, uh, which occurred in Illinois, uh, was just a startling example where long before YouTube and really cell phones, the perpetrator, who was one of our fairly well-regarded employees, videotaped his message about his plan to go back to Motorola to shoot his coworkers and literally to commit suicide. So a lot of these cases have historical context. And again, this was well before kind of the manifesto mentality that we have today. So I'd love to talk more about it. Yeah, I, I, so would I. Uh, I'll, I'll be reaching out to you uh, after we do this. Um, sure. But let's jump into crisis leadership now. One of the pieces in your book that uh, stood out for me was something that I've not come across in a lot of other uh, books about uh, business continuity, disaster planning, crisis leadership. You talk about the board of directors. Now, everything that I ever come across, it's usually we're just notifying the board of directors, but you go into a little bit more detail. So 
from your point of view, what's the role and responsibility of the board of directors? You know, and, and when should they get involved? What should they do? What should they not do? Sure. Excellent. And thank you for picking up on it, because I have to say it was one of the surprise points for many people. I think whether you're running a local charity or a major multinational corporation, you said it perfectly, Alex. So many people will notify the board if there's a loss of life, if there's a chemical explosion. You know, there are certain thresholds. It could be financial damage. So usually a board will already define when they should be notified. I'd like to put that aside and kind of come back to common sense, meaning we don't need any kind of chart that tells us when to notify the board. The CEO and senior leadership of any organization has a really a fiduciary responsibility. And the reason I emphasize that word fiduciary means that the corporation, wherever they are in the world, literally, the entity is governed by the board, which employs the management team. A lot of people don't understand that. They often think it's the other way around. So let me repeat that. The board of directors or board of trustees of a university, the board, employs management. And sometimes management doesn't want to inform the board because it makes them look inept. Maybe they made a bad decision. Maybe they simply uh, are embarrassed, whatever the case may be. But the fiduciary is what's really critical. And in recent years, both in Europe and in the United States, and in some countries, even in Asia-Pacific, you're seeing shareholders, employees, investors, that when there's a disaster of any kind, that they will bring a lawsuit not only against the entity, but against the board. Now, the board has insurance, but remember, if there was a failure to act, if they were grossly negligent, if, if people, your listeners, you really want to focus on that word, gross negligence, meaning did the board ever get a briefing on what these risks are? Did the board ever ask questions when these briefings were given? So how engaged you are as a board member is an incredibly important part of business continuity. So who gives them that information? You know, engaging them. Is that what the, um, is that the business continuity management person or is, you know, how do, do they get this information? Who gives it to them? So it really depends upon the company, but I would say in many organizations, it will be the chief risk officer. And we're seeing a nice elevation globally of companies that just like we have a chief marketing officer now we have a chief risk officer who looks at the people, the chemicals, you know, geopolitical, the supply chain. For the chief risk officer, and if you don't have that, then certainly the people who are devoted to business continuity are very well equipped and articulate to give that kind of briefing. In some cases, it might be done by the chair of the risk committee, meaning it would be given by another member of the board who may be doing it with legal counsel and sometimes even with the insurance company. And don't ever underestimate the power of the insurance company to really help you in giving these briefings. Because remember that when you have, there's two kinds of insurance that are important for your listeners, Alex. It's called ENO, which is errors and omission, right? And DNO, director and officer. And what that means is, remember, if you're a director and you were not briefed or asking the right questions amid a scandal, then the question will be, what did you know? When did you know it? What did you do about it? Well, the flip side is, what didn't you know? Why didn't you ask questions? Why weren't you engaged? So mm -hmm. your insurance company might also be able to help you with these briefings. So let's use the, the current uh, pandemic situation right now. When things happen, are, are is the BOD directing some of the responses, or is it more the uh, their employees, meaning the you know the C-suite, 
you know, directing things, you know, or, and the board just watches or gives advice and is just notified, like how, how should they get involved or should, should they not get involved until they see or hear something go wrong? So most companies globally, and that includes, by the way, even nonprofits, are not going to have the board very actively involved in pandemic planning. And the reason is, as opposed to an event, a catastrophe, a plane crash, a chemical spill, um, as opposed to you know a CEO committing suicide or being arrested, as opposed to any of those events which do potentially rise to the level of a notification to investors or to a regulatory involvement. The board in the pandemic, for the most part, is only being advised. They're not being asked to make any kind of judgments. They may be asked their opinion. They may be asked, what are you doing within your own companies? Because they often serve as CEOs or CFOs of other companies. But it's much more going to be a briefing as opposed to an active, what would you do or what do you think we should be doing? Because remember, the board has employed management to make those decisions. So is it fair to say it's the situation itself that will dictate how involved they, they get and the impact that the it. situation has? Yes. I had a case two weeks ago in India actually with the CEO. Actually, three, this is a stunning story, but I'll, I'll have to think about how I, how I get permission to write it in my next book. But three <laughs> of the nine officers of this major corporation in India all came down with COVID and were actively acutely sick. So the board had to be notified not only that all three were hospitalized, but the contingency plan in terms of succession planning, which I know you've written about and talked about, is very important. And that had to come right back to the board. So as opposed to here's what we're doing on testing or here's what we're thinking about in terms of our customers, this was a question of we may lose our CEO and, by the way, almost one-third of our executive leadership. If that happens, we need to our investors, we have to have a plan B on succession planning. So it's very complicated and there's no easy solution, obviously. So in some cases, it's notify and keep them informed. And in other cases, stand by, ladies and gentlemen, because we may need you to make a decision. Yeah, that reminds me actually of an experience I had. We, we did a tabletop test and uh, at the very end, when we finished our, our test, I handed out envelopes with uh, green, yellow, and red markers in them just to see you know, all the decisions you made open your envelope, would the same decision still be made with who's available? Red, obviously they weren't. Right. Yellow, you didn't know where they were. Green, they were okay. And it turned out the two red ones went to the only two decision makers in the room. <laughs> and it just yeah. kind of reminded me of what, what you just uh, spoke about. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because one of the fascinating things about the simulations, which are so critical, right, in terms of prep and just kind of helping to culturalize the, the organization, is that I always have thought it awkward. I'm at this 31 years. I've always thought it fascinating on simulations that we tell the senior executives or even mid-level managers when the simulation will be, when it will occur. It's on their schedule. And that's one of the most artificial, and I think you talk about negligence, I think it's an irresponsible thing to do. If you're, a real, if you're very committed to what you are, Alex, in terms of business continuity, crisis management, if you're serious, this is varsity. You do not notify people in advance. You put the planning, you have the definition, you have your playbook, you have all of your learning curves, but you do not tell people in advance because if you truly want to understand 24-7, we do not necessarily are going to have a crisis at 2 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. And then when these people walk in the room, guess what? We've got cookies and coffee. I mean, it's the most outrageous, 
unrealistic circumstance. If you're going to test your organization, shake them up, wake them up, and that's the way you're actually going to have a very, very effective simulation. Well, see, we are so so far off script. I love this. That reminded me of uh, of another um, same company actually, a tabletop. We uh, more detailed than the last one. But the very first person that walked into the room, I gave them an envelope. I said, "You need to read this," and it outlined what the situation was, and that they were the person notified. They were the person who found what the situation was, and right. it said. Now go do what, you know, start what you think you need to do. And uh, everyone kept coming in the room. This person still sat there with the paper. 20 minutes, everyone's wondering, well, what's going on? When are we going to start? And I, I pointed to the person. I said, it started 20 minutes ago, and you guys are behind schedule. You know, what you just said, you can't predict it. <laughs> no, and here's another one for your listeners to consider. When you run a simulation, and I've done, I did this with a mutual fund company probably, uh, I guess, January, right before the pandemic. But during the simulation, mid-simulation, in other words, we're already making decisions, looking at videos, trying to determine Twitter. We're trying to think about the impact on investors. We actually went and tapped on the shoulder. Now, this is the flip side of what you just said on two of the active leaders and said, you've just had a heart attack. Please leave the room. Or your daughter has just had a major you know, crash, auto crash. Please leave the room now. So to take out some of the people who are dominant voices, always there, always going to be, you know, a a leading authority, that's not realistic either. So it's both a question of having the right people in the room and also be willing to pull out the people that are the alphas, because sometimes they're not going to be your best friend or even available. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know Regina Phelps. Um, She's been on the show quite a bit and and an industry expert. Um, but she uses that in her testing simulations too. I think she calls it uh, injections, which you know throw mm-hmm. people off their game. <laughs> right, right. It matters because this is all about the unexpected. We're going to have hurricanes. We know we're going to have fires. We know that we're going to be using losing utilities. We understand that there are going to be some industrial accidents. You build that into the just the the, the character, the nature of who you are. It really is throwing the curveball that really. Mm-hmm defines junior varsity from the varsity organizations that know how to prepare for crisis. Right. And on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we are talking with Dr. Lawrence Barton, author of Crisis Leadership Now. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. 
Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Dr. Lawrence Barton, the author of Crisis Leadership Now. Uh, Larry, great first segment. Lots of uh, interesting comments there. And um, I want I mentioned that we had a chat last week about you know putting this show together, and you made some interesting comments um, you know uh, about the industry, you know the the kinds of uh, people that are best suited to be crisis leaders and uh, you know be in charge of some of these situations. Uh, so I was kind of wondering, you know, what kind of people should we or or try to get into some of these crisis leadership uh, roles? You know, um, very good. Yeah, sure. And and the characteristics we have. Sure, I think many of those that we have are not only the right people, but they're the exceptional right people. Meaning, they've either come from a military background, a law enforcement background, possibly a risk management perspective, where they've worked the numbers, they know the logistics, they understand telecommunications, the importance of IT, of how to actually send a message and and really process right and evaluate a message. So. The nice thing about this whole industry, Alex, is that people come from this constellation of talent, and not any one background really dominates the landscape, and I think that's pretty cool. The problem mm-hmm. is, because of that, we also don't always speak the same language. So the military folks you know, tend to be more regimented. Those that maybe came from a risk management background tend to be more numbers-oriented. You know, what would an actuary think? So we don't have really a common lexicon. We don't really have a common set of operating principles. And sometimes we have a lot of people that candidly have stumbled into the role who never wanted the role. And they basically are going through the motions, right? They're going to go to the seminars. They're going to want their couple of credentials after their name. But their their, their, their passion and their interest is really not acute. So that's where the leadership comes into play. And I would hope that they get weeded out over time or they get a role in the company where they will be happy. But there is a compelling need, I think, for us globally to begin to reach for the stars and start saying that there will be certain expectations and standards that if you're involved in crisis prevention, you know, one of the things so important, you know this, Alex, but your listeners need to understand it. We will never get to crisis response if we haven't first thought about the crisis prevention. So that's why the safety initiatives and the the simulations and just contemplating the worst case and engaging your vendors and your suppliers. You know, I mentioned Motorola earlier, but in my days there, one of the first crises we had was that basically one of our key suppliers and a sole supplier, the factory burnt in China. And when that factory, when that notification came our way, I did not, running business continuity in crisis, understand the ramifications. It took me a full day because I wasn't a specialist in that part of the world. I, I wasn't a specialist in that kind of product to understand how damaging and what literally leading to thousands of people out of work and the temporary closure of the facility. So mm-hmm. I'm a good example. I, w- I was in that very pot of a group of people that I, it was not that I was over my head. It's just that nobody had ever explained to me what I was responsible for. So we've come a long way as an industry, but I think we also need to continually just do a little bit of a purging uh, no different than Intel or a lot of great companies that, you know, every year 10% of the employees are removed, even if they are good to moderate performers. I'd love to see the same kind of standard applied in crisis prevention and management because we have a lot of bottom feeders, and it's time to kind of say goodbye to them. 
Is that because sometimes managers, um, you know, are are perceived if you're a manager, you're a leader, and if you're a leader, you're a good manager. Is, is that true, or is is that be, you know people end up with some of these positions simply because they're a manager for no other reason? Uh, you're the first person to ever ask that, and I wish more did. You know why I think it is? I think it's because we've done a lousy job. We meaning those involved in crisis management, business continuity. We've done a really lousy job of indicating that this is a profession, that there's real education, real university courses, tests to take, rigor to go through, standards to meet. We've done a lousy job, and so as a result, people tend to look at it as kind of a cousin of security, maybe involved with the law department, maybe involved with logistics, maybe loss prevention. It's an undefined area that's kind of like jello. So as a result, I blame ourselves. I don't think we've done a good job of convincing the C-suite and the board and certainly the investment community that if you do not have a readiness plan on how to take care of your big three, how to protect your people, how to protect your brand, how to protect your financial condition. And that's where our contemporaries need to step to the plate and say, we are the ones that are watching over the big three, people, brand, financial condition. And until we do that effectively, we're still going to be seen often as people that are nice to have, but don't have a seat at the table all the time. So does, does uh, I'm, I'm interpreting that a little bit to, to kind of say that the crisis leader should be someone a little higher up in the organization that has some sort of a decision-making abilities, but also can see the bigger picture than just what's in their own little silo. Would that be kind of correct? Am I saying that right? It, it is. I think if you look in the past year, look at how many organizations in this year, 2020, have appointed chief diversity officers, have started to understand that there's a long-standing, compelling need to have somebody in that role. Well, the same has been true for literally decades, well after Bhopal, well after Enron, long after Chernobyl. We still don't have someone who is a chief risk officer at many, many wonderful organizations. So until we get to that point, it's going to be an uphill struggle. And some companies, oh, they race to the table. They'll call me up and ask for job descriptions and interview candidates and make recommendations. What does that happen? You know what? It happens, Alex, after there's been a spill, after there's been an accident or a suicide by an executive or an indictment by a grand jury. So it's after there's some catastrophe that all of a sudden crisis leadership becomes paramount to the organization. No. If you are serious about taking care of your people, you should be looking at this with the same amount of swiftness that you have diversity and talent acquirement in this past year. If we had that same level of energy, a lot of things would change for the better. Yeah. You now you mentioned you know sometimes they, uh, you know that a lot of that stuff happens after the fact. That got me thinking about lessons learned. Uh, is that a skill that um, you know designated crisis managers should actually fully understand lessons learned, not uh, you know finger pointing? Yes, I think so. I think, you know, the time to, to finger point really rests with the litigation team and with, with the press and with analysts and pundits and those that were the victims and the witnesses of some horrific. But when it comes to your organization, a lot of what we've learned is be fast, be humble, be truthful, tell people what you know, acknowledge what you don't know. If we do that, it's just astounding how people will be very sympathetic, you know, President Kennedy, one of the great lessons that comes out of the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
is that, you know, here he was a new president. He wasn't particularly well-liked. He inherited a pretty bad plan from the prior administration. And he goofed. I mean, the whole plan was a disaster. But what he did was paramount. He went on national TV and he said, I made a mistake. I never should have accepted this plan. And I take full responsibility. And his public opinion rating soared. And sympathy and understanding also increased. But more importantly, JFK became a better president, became a much, much better president um, as a result of that. So the invasion of Cuba was a disaster. But when it came to the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was absolutely a very different president. Is that, because um, we were talking about some of the characteristics, uh, you know, a, f- a few minutes ago, uh, admitting to mistakes, is that a key one that, you know, uh, either, you know, be humble or something, you know, but be straightforward and admit to mistakes when things are wrong? Like, don't just pass the buck like so many other leaders right now do? Oh, we've been lawyerized, haven't we? I mean, regardless of where you work, we've been told by our law departments, don't say you're sorry. Once you say that, it's an admission of guilt. Um, And that's trickled down into our own family. Don't admit you're sorry. That may come back and haunt you. I think it's a very sad thing. Um, The great leaders in history, whether it's in politics or sports or entertainment or the industrialized world, the people who do come forward and say, "Um, I take responsibility. I I apologize, and I'm going to make it right. Those stand out. But when you have the CEO of BP in the Gulf states saying, listen, I'm tired. I've been here for months. I want to go home. I want my life back. The reason that people were so outraged over that is it wasn't about him. We didn't really care about Mm -hmm. him. He had zero humility. And that people will always remember arrogance or indifference. Even though he might be the nicest guy in the world, guess what? He said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and that's why these people get a big paycheck, is because during a crisis, not just when you're giving your dividend announcement, but when you have a new product announcement, you're on a big stage with lots of people on LinkedIn, when it hits the fan, be honest and be humble. And mostly, your shareholders, and I mean stakeholders as well, are going to be incredibly supportive and understanding of you. People want to people want to see you rebound. They want to see you come back. They want to see a company or an organization just be resilient. But if you lie or if you cheat or if you stumble or if you try to do the blame game, good luck. Yeah, that that reminds me of um, well, I forgot the gentleman's name now, but uh, he was in charge of the railroad at the Lac Megantique uh, trail disaster, where you know the downtown. Uh, yeah. destroy, was destroyed and 47 uh, people died and uh, he decided to run the uh, he said it in front of even the, the families of people that had died I thought it better to run the crisis from Chicago you know that's the stuff that books are made out of and that lectures are created and you, know, you have to think about your obituary how will your obituary be framed it's probably going to be framed either by your leadership and, and, and culturally, how you treated people with compassion and swiftness during a time of crisis. But I would not want to be that senior executive whose obituary kind of leads with, you know, a comment such as whose gaffe statement or whose mistake or whose perceived indifference led to, mm-hmm. you know, literally the destruction of the company's finances. So you, you got to think on your feet, turn to your advisors, be prepared with a good crisis plan. You can do this. It's just a question of don't try to cram your leadership into a 10-minute 
know, issue right before you hit the microphone. Or a soundbite, as some people like to do. Yes. You know. That's right. Or better yet, send out your, you know, I spoke for Motorola for five years and uh, at many news conferences and to many, many media. And I will tell you that in a crisis, people do not want to hear from your chief communications person. They want to hear from the CEO. They expect to hear from the president of a college. They want to hear from the person at the Red Cross or the Boy Scouts or somebody who leads the church. When there's a disaster or a scandal, they do not want to hear from a public information officer if you're a police agency. They don't want to hear from the PIO. They want to hear from the chief. So be ready. Yeah. That you may not like it, and, and you may say, I'm not very good at it. It doesn't matter. Get out there and be tough and be rehearsed and do the best you can to be human. So that's very essential. Well, now you got me thinking with COVID-19. Has that changed any of the leadership, or has it uh, made it... Um, uh, made the points for crisis leadership even stronger now? Very good question. I think maybe more than ever, we understand vulnerability and compassion. And the people that have been able to hold their temper and not speculate and rely upon science, who remain very steady at a microphone, whether that's in a Senate hearing or the British Health Service or wherever you may be. If you look at the government of South Korea, which nobody has really studied, They've done an amazing job of containing this crisis. The government of Australia, it's almost 30,000 Australians who still cannot come home. There's only a few are allowed in each day. The people that have been steady, um, as opposed to kind of knee-jerk, tend to be the ones that will come out of COVID probably 20 years from now when those studies are being written as the men and women of great, great excellence when it came to decision-making. Yeah, and you know we see what happens with the other, you know, in some areas around the world where the opposite is occurring, shall we say, and the numbers, uh, even as of today, are going in the wrong direction. That's right. That's exactly right. And then when you have a second round or a third round, we need to be very cautious not to make promises that it's over or to give any false sense of security because uh, there is no crystal ball when it comes to public health that in any way could have predicted this. But there were many wonderful, talented people behind the scenes in public health, in schools of medicine, in epidemiology, you know, who even in the, in the military world, in the logistics world, were thinking about how to deploy medicines and, yes, body bags, but more importantly, life-saving strategies. You know, think about Doctors Without Borders. There's just so many organizations that have been uh, making an incredible amount of difference globally that often just don't get the attention they deserve. Yeah, um, you, you got me thinking of uh, an instance where um, uh, I was doing work the, the last place where I was a full-time employee and um, a couple of the uh, top leadership didn't want to talk about this subject because they thought that, you know, we'll figure it out when it happens. We don't want to cause panic, you know, and then when things did occur, they were the first ones to be frustrated that other people didn't know what was going on, you know, and then they well, started the people, blame yeah. gamings and they, you know, they were making uh, comments like you, you, you suggested, you know, off the cuff comments. Well, that's because of this and that's because of that. And it's like, no, you're, you're creating more confusion now. That's right. When I give testimony against a company and Alex, maybe a couple of times a year, I'll take a case. I try not to do a lot of it, but I also think it's important sometimes to keep yourself fresh with research 
And more importantly, I, if I feel I can make a difference for a family where they lost people, but what you just said is so essential. But when I train litigators on how to seek justice for a family or a group of workers that have been impacted, it's very essential that we hone in on that. Because we, if we have managers that are indifferent, but simply talk a good game, show up for work, but are not actively engaged. I spoke last year, I testified last year, against a general manager of a hotel. And without getting into the details, uh, one of his employees was murdered brutally. And I'll tell you that what was fascinating is this is a person who literally had no idea they had a crisis plan, didn't understand where the manifest was for the staff, had never attended or engaged in any kind of workshops, including those offered by the company on dealing with violence, and the heinous murder of one of his room attendants, the fact that they were notified, the hotel was notified not by a guest. You know who they were notified by? The local police called them and said, we were just informed by a local minister. Somebody walked in and confessed to his sins, you've had a shooting at your hotel. Now, what kind of leadership is that? you got to be fast. you got to know the drill. you got to be ready to be engaged. And then when you drill down, how many seminars, how many courses, how many simulations, how often do you walk in the building, how often do you go to other hotels to see what their security protocol looks like. Don't wait for it to happen. Get out there before it happens so that you're engaged. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely on that one. Um, and on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. Today, we're talking with the author of Crisis Leadership Now, Dr. Lawrence Barton. We'll be right back. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Dr. Lawrence Barton, the author of Crisis Leadership Now. Larry, our, our uh, end of our second segment was a perfect segue into where I kind of want to go in our, our, our last segment here. How do we recognize when we're in a, a crisis situation? You know, we have daily business as usual incidents that our help desk work on, you know, and, and things that we fix. How do we get from one of those to a crisis? So there's many definitions, right? I mean, when you think about it, many people have opined over the years, and everyone has a unique take, I think, Alex, in terms of what they consider to be a crisis to be. But I've always relied on the big three. If it impacts your people, your brand, and your financial condition. Now, I mean all three. And the reason I say that is you could have a situation that impacts your people but doesn't have a financial impact, or 
you could have a loss of a major customer. That's a financial impact. But it really doesn't impact the brand because it's not necessarily a huge mega company. But if it hits all three, then you're in it pretty deep. And that's the time for you to be thinking about your crisis plan, your standby statements. And one of the factors that I would say adds to that criteria would be, are there any victims? Have people either been physically or emotionally harmed? Maybe someone saw an industrial accident. They saw someone you know, literally electrocuted in the back of a manufacturing plant. They witnessed workplace violence. They saw something. Could be a bank robbery. So what are the, what, what are the victims? What's that victimology look like? Then I would be thinking about, do any of these people need counseling? Did they need an employee assistance program? Now think about the tragedy in Nova Scotia earlier this year with random shootings throughout an entire swath of land that was massive. That wasn't a corporate disaster, but it was a community disaster because you didn't have the prime minister fast to the switch. You had the province trying to grapple with a unfolding crime. So it wasn't something that there's anything, no, no script could possibly have anticipated that. But many of the small little towns did a great job of getting terrific nurses psychologists, trauma counselors, people of the ministry, and others to kind of support people. So what does the victimology look like? Does it hit the big three? And then maybe the last one that I would add would be what I call a Twitter factor. What's the possibility that Twitter or something like it will light up so fast, Alex, that you can't keep up with it? Because it's, you know, it's Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, and you cannot get your communication people or your marketing people Many years ago, um, there was a shooting at a women's store, uh, basically a clothing store in Illinois, and five women were murdered. And I remember telling the reporter from USA Today, I'll never forget when she called because the shooting occurred on a Saturday morning. And it was Lane Bryant was the name of the, the store. And the reporter's name was Judy Keene. And we, I think we talked maybe at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but I said, Judy, go on to literally lanebryant.com. And you know there was nothing on there literally 12 hours later, 12 hours later that said, if you have any information about the shooter, if you have any information on the whereabouts, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims. People expect that a company will be fast, that you will be monitoring Twitter, that you will know what is being said. And yes, mm-hmm. some people may have embarrassing or egregious, vile video that needs to be removed. Well, how do you contact Facebook? How do you contact Twitter? How do you get a hold of Instagram? While we're sitting yeah. around getting ready with our nice deli sandwiches for simulation, we better know the phone numbers and the hotlines to who we need to connect with during a crisis. And the time to do that is now. Well, it's interesting. You you mentioned you know the the Twitterverse uh, as I've heard it called. That uh, I had a guest, uh, Lieutenant Glenn Mills from the um, Burlington Police Department in uh, Massachusetts, and he said, uh, Mm -hmm. suggested that a lot of companies should actually have some of these monitoring tools that are out there to do exactly what you just mentioned, to see what's happening on Twitter so they can get their message, the right messages out of there instead of the usual um, you know, you gave an example, you know, 12 hours later, you know, hours later where things are, are being said that, he, you know, all these companies should actually monitor uh, what's happening so they can get a handle on it quicker. Well, there's some good news here. And I think the good news to celebrate, Alex, is that there are many companies that are doing an amazing job, an extremely competent job. They have an emergency operations center or they have a GSOC, a global security operations center, where they're doing just that. 
so that if there's an issue, if there's a controversy, if possibly someone says something on talk radio and it lights up, you know, the comment room, basically Mm -hmm. they have the ability to monitor. So I'm actually impressed, A, that those companies are doing it, and B, that they know the escalation process of how they might notify all the way to the CEO and only if it was extraordinary. But I honestly, I would say in the past two to three years, it is stunning and impressive. You know, in this interview, it's been a little bit of a downer, right? A lot of things are not going well. So I think we should take a moment to really praise the people in IT who are involved in content moderation, who are involved in making sure that we notify people and that we have a good sense of what the pulse is. Because if we can reduce mm-hmm. criticism, if we can help the people that were victims and witnesses, and we can get them some kind of psychological counseling. There's so much good. There's so much good that can come out of a crisis, and we kind of need to remember that. Well, that kind of leads to our our next... I I agree with you completely, and, and, you know, I I, I think, you know, finding the silver lining in, you know, what can be a very negative uh, uh, topic is a good thing. And so it's got me thinking, you know, how can we lower the risk of crises then? You know, with all these good stories, you know, that... uh, uh, and some of the good points that you brought forward. Are there other ways we can do it as well, other things we can put in place? I think first, find a good consultant external to your organization who knows your sector. If they don't know farming, if they don't understand the seed or agriculture space, if they don't know biotechnology, if they're not working in the plant sciences, whatever the topic may be, if they don't know your sector, I would probably find someone else. But first, Think about an external subject, maybe somebody from a local university, some consultant who understands the issues of risk and resiliency. So that would be number one, and then have them do an independent audit of how prepared you are and allow that audit to go all the way to the board of directors because that will in and of itself be an act of integrity, it's an act of goodness, and candidly, it's an act of toughness that shows how resilient and how willing you are to say, we're not ready, or this third party found that we were exceptionally ready. So first, know the resources that are available in your sector and even in your geography. Secondly, Mm -hmm. like we talked about before, you have to have a plan. And no one is going to sit there and read War and Peace. You know, Exxon Valdez, (laughs) yeah, they had a a plan, 1,501 pages. No one's going to sit there and read it. A good crisis plan should be less than 30 pages, and the most important page is the one with phone numbers. It's how to get people together quickly so you can collaborate and inform, you know, at Disney is a company I've had the privilege to work with for 30 years. At Disney, there are briefings at the top and the bottom of every half hour. Every half hour, you're going to get a briefing, even for two minutes on what's going on, so that you're not clogging the entire hour with, what's going on in Hong Kong? What's happening in Burbank? How many people were injured on that ride? So top and bottom of the hour. Be thinking about the best practices of how to notify people. Have that resource 24-7 that you can turn to who gets it in terms of crisis management who is not an alarmist, who's going to try to bring some kind of semblance of sanity, and then remind people, you know, one of the things I love, Alex, about the the cruise industry is, you know, that some of the best captains in the world, as you know, come from Greece. And one of the things they they teach a a Greek captain in training is that no matter how bad it is, no matter how rough the seas, no matter how horrific the storm is, you have to remember there is land ahead. And I've always thought that that's a wonderful way to kind of remind the organization, not that this too shall pass, because that's, that's kind of an arrogant statement, right? But rather, we're going to get there through good, smart, common sense and collaboration. We will come through this. And sometimes people overreact 
they can make a, a problem into a crisis because they call out the troops too soon. They've got all kinds of people on a conference call. You know, I, I've, I've been called sometimes, and all of a sudden I thought there'd be three people on the call. There's like 33 people on the call. I'm like, what in God's name? People that have yeah. no interest, no skill, uh, they were there just to kind of listen in on the drama. So you've got to have the discipline in advance to understand crisis prevention, and then you'll better understand crisis response. Uh, well, we've only got less than three minutes left. Um, can I give you, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes for any final thoughts on uh, crisis leadership? Well, first, thank you for what you're doing, because I think this is a, a wonderful way to just keep the dialogue going among all the professionals. So thank you sincerely for doing that. Um, I'll tell people my website, if you'd like to read more, is LarryBarton.com, LarryBarton.com. Uh, the book you mentioned, Crisis Leadership Now, it, I'm just honored. I mean, it's been adopted by 400 companies and I think about 600 universities. And then the new work that just came out is called The Violent Person at Work, and you can get both of those on Amazon. And I would just say that the good news for all of us is that the world, you know, I thought it's an interesting phrase, Alex, the world right now has never moved so quickly, and it will never, ever be this slow again. I want you to think about that. As quickly as we're moving, it will never be mm -hmm. this slow again. So rev up your engines, be ready, be prepared, not paranoid, and just know that there's a lot of collective wisdom out there for you to tap. And if people want, um, want to just link with me on LinkedIn, I would love that. And I'd be privileged to uh, be connected with all of you. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Larry, for joining us. You know, and um, I, I think uh, last week, <laughs> you know, well, you mentioned that, uh, you know, Crisis Leadership Now, the book has kind of had a resurgence lately. And let's face it, right now, the, we need good leadership. And, uh, you know, your book is a, a great reference for that. Well, thank you kindly, and I appreciate all your good work, Alex. Thank you again. Thank you. So to everyone out there listening, uh, if there's a topic you want us to talk about, please feel free to get in touch with me. A uh, reminder about BCI World, I speak on November 5th. Uh, thanks to everyone at Stone Road for sponsoring today's show. And again, thank you, uh, Larry, for your book. And uh, I will be reaching out to you to talk to you about the new one, uh, The Violent Person at Work. Uh, I think that's going to be another interesting topic. So I'll send you a quick note on that one. But thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.